Hello, and welcome to episode 48 of the Medical Device Success Podcast and Videocast. I am Ted Newell, your host. Thank you so much for listening in and or viewing. Today, we continue with our In the C-Suite series. Our guest today is Mark Oksakowski, CEO of EDAP TMS, based in Lyon, France. Mark and his team are celebrating raising $28 million that would be spent primarily on growth in the United States. Where is this growth going to come from? From an amazing technology called High Intensity Focused Ultrasound, or HIFU, and its initial application for prostate cancer. This is an interesting story of innovation, leadership, good strategic planning, and implementation. Pay attention to the show notes because in the show notes, we'll have links to Mark's LinkedIn profile, the EDAP TMS website, and their U.S. HIFU prostate website, which is a little bit more patient-centric. If you like this podcast, be sure to recommend it to a friend, subscribe, and or rate it. Now it's time to meet Mark and learn more about the amazing HIFU technology, Mark's convincing leadership style, and the team-oriented culture at EDAP that delivers results. Mark, it is really great to have you on the programs, and it'll be it's just going to be exciting to learn about not only the technology that you are moving forward, but also about how you have led this company and brought it to the place it is right now. Well, thank you, Ted, and uh, good morning, everyone. Thank you for inviting me today. It's a, it's a pleasure to be with you and share that time and share also different vision on our company and how did we get there. So thank you very much for inviting us. Oh, you're welcome. And for the listeners and uh, viewers, Mark is, I think, the third C-suite individual I've had from Europe. This would be, the, I think, the second CEO from Europe. And he's calling in from Lyon, France. And we were just talking about that before we got started. We were talking about what a wonderful city Lyon was to live in and or to visit. Absolutely. And, and I encourage everyone to come and visit us. I mean, we're, as I was explaining to you, Ted, I mean, we're extremely well located, close to the Alps, not very far from the Mediterranean Sea, in the middle of wine regions. And we have a tremendous technology uh, for medical devices and pharmaceutical uh, industries, but also in the we, have the, we, we are still considered as the capital of food. So please come anytime and uh, <laughs> let me know. I'll be pleased to host you here. So that region does have a reputation for the life sciences? Absolutely. It's, it's a big region for pharmaceutical. It's a big region for biotech and medtech industry. Oh, I didn't know that. Is it based off of like, is there, are there some universities there that sort of become the nexus of that kind of development? Yeah, I mean, Lyon is the probably the second largest city for university in France. We have a very strong University of Medicine as well as uh, technologies, uh, engineers. 
So uh, it's yeah, it's very and it's very dynamic. It's really well located as well in terms of you know being connected to the rest of Europe, and that has made the 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 the, the region extremely dynamic in terms of biotech, medtech, and pharmaceutical. Okay, well, tell us a little bit about what your role is and a, a short description of EDAP. Sure. So my role, I'm the CEO of EDAP, and I've been CEO of the company for the last 15 years almost. So my role is really to uh, drive the company to design the vision, the strategy, and then make sure we execute it at, uh, at, uh, at global level of the company. Uh, EDAP is, uh, is a company that manufactures, uh, develop first, then manufactures, distribute, and service non-invasive technology primarily in the use for urology. The company was born by developing shockwave lithotripsy for the treatment of kidney stone back 40 years ago. We continue to do that business, but we now also work and invest a lot in high-intensity focused ultrasound today for the treatment of prostate cancer. But tomorrow, we are also developing a number of research program and development program to go beyond prostate cancer and uh, more specifically treating endometriosis but then ultimately as well, developing a full platform, surgical platform using HIFU for non-invasive energy-based ablation of tissue treating different pathologies and organs in the body. The company has, has developed a full uh, network of distribution worldwide with fully owned subsidiaries in major markets, including Japan, South Korea, and Malaysia to cover the entire South system, I mean, the entire Asian countries. We also have an office in Dubai for Middle East. We have an office in Russia for uh, for in Moscow for the Russian market. We do, of course, have our factory here in Lyon, and we uh, we take care of the French market by ourselves. We have a subsidiary in Germany, and of course, we have a subsidiary in the United States to cover uh, the U.S. market. Okay, and how many employees do you have? So so far, we have about two hundred and thirty employees, out of which one hundred and thirty are in France. And right. all of our manufacturing and development is done in Lyon, France. Okay. And for everybody that's listening, um, the uh, EDAP is a public company. So if you like what you hear in this interview, you can always invest. And I think in 2019 was a really strong year. Of course, that's pre-pandemic. And I, I thought I was doing some numbers the other day, and I think it looked like you did about 54 million U.S. dollars in 2019. Um, well, that was euros. So that was 24 something million euros. So in, in US dollars, it was more than 50. It was around 50, 55. Okay. 55, 55 million US dollars. So anyway, a very strong year. And we'll talk about, we'll talk about the effect of, uh, or the impact of the pandemic here shortly. And also for everybody to listen, um, You'll hear us frequently say HIFU, and that always means high-intensity focused ultrasound, which is really exciting. And it's not only exciting for the EDAP application, but there's a lot of other applications uh, that, that high-intensity focused ultrasound is being used in these days. So it's really going to be a, a leading technology, and EDAP's right there with this technology. So very, very interesting the company's relatively young. I mean, it was only founded in 1979. And I think you said it's primarily started with lithotripsy. Is that correct? Absolutely, yeah. The, okay. the foundation of the company was the development of uh, extracorporeal shockwave lithotripsy for the treatment of kidney stone. 
Okay. And, and that's a shock wave that breaks up the kidney stones. Correct. And is that used um, a lot, you know, as a primary, I don't, uh, maybe not a primary uh, method of care, but is it still used frequently? Oh, yeah. It is still okay. used a, a lot, about 40 to 45% of the cases uh, to uh, when a patient has a kidney stone, the use of lithotripsy will be the, uh, the standard of care. Okay. And if I recall, because I was in the urology market early in my career with catheters and implants and such, if I recall, um, you know, EDAP is one of the leading companies in lithotripsy. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we've been among the first to, uh, to get uh, lithotripsy on the market. And uh, as I explained, I mean, through our global network of subsidiaries, but also distributors and agents, we have a very strong install base of equipment with more than 700 active machines around the world in, a, in approximately 40 to 50 countries. So yeah, we, we're, we're among the leading companies in, in terms of uh, shockwave lithotripsy. Okay. And that gives, us, that gives us also an extremely strong experience, but also expertise in the urology field as urologists are the one using lithotripters and taking care of patients that have uh, kidney, uh, I mean, stone, stone kidney issues. Right. And then when did the company see the potential in high intensity uh, focused ultrasound in HIFU? When, how many years ago did you start seeing the potential for this technology? So we've, we've been working for a long time. I mean, we, we, we started to work in the late 80s, early 90s in terms of uh, basic research. And again, shockwave lithotripsy and high-intensity focused ultrasound are similar in their, uh, in their concept, even though very different in terms of frequency and in terms of, uh, of different other things. But we've, we've always been working on, on shockwave and, and, uh, and you know, wave based on ultrasound. So uh, we've been working on HIFU f- since the early 90s. Actually, we treated our first prostate cancer patient here in Lyon back in 1993. So we've been doing a lot of uh, clinical investigation since then on, uh, again, primarily prostate cancer treatment. And as I said now, and we'll probably come back on that later, we're also now doing some clinical studies on other indications such as endometriosis or more basic research program on other type of organs. Right. Well, it's really, it's a real cool technology. So why don't you go into a little bit more detail of how the high intensity um, focused ultrasound works? Because there's actually, a, if I recall from our conversations and from looking at the website, there are a couple steps there's actually, it does a couple different things as the, uh, the doctor is preparing to do the actual uh, treatment of, of like a, a cancerous lesion. Could you explain that a little bit more? Sure, sure. I, w- I will try to, uh, to keep it simple. But, but if we really want to make a long story short, HIFU really works like a sunbeam going through a, a magnifying glass. And uh, that you know, will generate a high elevation of temperature at, focal, at, at the focal point, And that elevation of temperature will create acoustic pressure and cavitation uh, at the level of the, the cells, I mean, the membrane of the cells, which will basically break those membranes and then create necrosis in the tissue and ultimately kill uh, the tissue, creating necrosis in the tissue. 
So that's that's really, I mean, again, to 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 be extremely basic on the on the technology. I don't know if it's possible during the uh, the podcast, but I can, if you if you want, share a very quick video that would show you the different steps of a treatment using our focal one device that uh, does treat prostate cancer. And that's the exact same device we're using for endometriosis. So if I can share that on the screen, that would be extremely helpful. It's like two, a two or three minutes video. And that's- Sure, let's, yeah, let's do it. All right, so let me try to see. Uh, okay, do you see my screen here? I see your screen. I see a big focal one. Excellent. Which is, the name of the, which is the name of the product. That's the name of the product. That's yeah, exactly yeah. it. So, and you can see this product is a single module. And on this module, we have one part on the right with two screens that is the control station from where we will use the clinical database as well as the clinical images. The heart of the system is the endorectal probe that you see here on the screen. That endorectal probe is made of two transducers one in the middle that is the imaging ultrasound transducer and the other one around that is the HIFU transducer. The probe, as you see, is mounted on a fully motorized and robotized arm that will uh, generate movement in all direction so that the, uh, the treatment, the, the robot can execute the treatment based on the planning done by the urologist. It's very similar to an autopilot. The, the, the urologist will plan the treatment and the robot will execute it. Okay. The machine is connected to any sort of operating table. The patient will be positioned on decubitus lateral position on the table. And then the probe will be inserted into the rectum of the patient so that we have a very, very good access to the prostate from here. The first phase of the treatment is a full scan of the prostate using the uh, imaging, the ultrasound imaging transducer. Then the image will be reconstructed in three dimensions on the control station. As you can see, we, have, we now have the ultrasound image. So the first phase will start to, be, to do a contour of the prostate so that we have all the coordinates of the prostate within the machine. And then we can start then planning the treatment. We will also use MRI images, for example, uh, where we have diagnose some suspicious area in the prostate, like you can see here. The yellow part is the suspicious area on the MRI image. And then we will fuse uh, using a proprietary software. We will fuse the MRI image with the real-time ultrasound image so that we can duplicate on the real-time ultrasound image the suspicious area we want to treat. You can see from the MRI to the ultrasound image. Uh -huh. Once we have on the ultrasound image the, the suspicious area, we know we have the targeted area that we want to treat during the treatment. In that example, we are doing what we call a focal treatment. That means we will treat only part of the prostate, the part that has been identified with having prostate cancer. We can also, in other cases, depending on the strategy, do a radical treatment of the prostate. Then we will start doing some slices in the prostate to position the HIFU lesions within the area that we want to treat. We will take some margin as it is recommended by the American Urology Association. And once all this is done and, and planned, then we'll press the button and the robot will execute the treatment by delivering the HIFU energy within the area that has been designed and planned. You can see here that we are positioning very small lesion. One of the good and the big benefit of HIFU is that it produces very small lesion, 1.7 millimeter diameter by five millimeter long. 
and we will position as many lesions, as many hypho lesions that we need to cover the entire treatment volume that has been targeted. At the end of the treatment, using contrast image enhancement, we can check that we have created necrosis in the area of the prostate that was needed, and then we have a confirmation of the treatment. So and then this, where, where this does is the, the way it works. Where does the tissue that's been destroyed go? Is it just absorbed by the body, by the vascular, vascular, vascular it, system? Exactly. It becomes fibrotic tissue, and that's absorbed by the body. Okay. To me, that's just amazing. And if, first of all, you did a great verbal description, so thank you. But for people that can view this or go to the website, the EDAP TMS website to watch videos there. It's just fascinating. And it's just an amazing technology that can not only do some imaging to help plan the procedure, but then it can execute the procedure. So uh, very, very cool. There is, there is also another website that I would recommend is called Haifu Prostate. And you will find all the information as well as videos about the treatment, as well as some testimonials from patients that are very interesting. Because again, one of the, one of the very uh, interesting part of it, as you may have seen, is a completely non-invasive technology. That means we don't cut the body. We don't insert needle. We use natural ways to get to the prostate. And we will use ultrasound, which is a clean energy and very precise energy that allows to do from radical treatment to focal treatment. And that really allows to design and define the strategy of treatment based on the, uh, on the stage of the patient. And the idea of that non-invasive treatment is to really bring efficacy. And we have up to 15 years uh, follow-up studies showing a very high level of efficacy. But the most important is to also preserve the quality of life of the patient. And by the precision and the fact that it's a clean energy, we're able to significantly reduce incontinence and erectile dysfunction rates after the treatment. And that's very, that's very helpful for those young and early stage patient that still have a long time to live after they've been diagnosed with prostate cancer. Right. And you said it was hifuprostate.com? Yeah. Okay. Is that your, is that uh, EDAP's patient forward type of uh, website? Absolutely. Absolutely. No. And it's extremely dedicated to, uh, to, to patient and to the technology. It's not too much on the, on the device or, or the business side of the, of the technology, but more towards the clinical uh, you know, benefits as well as the patient benefits. Right. Just for uh, listeners and viewers, uh, that's a terrific strategy. You know, uh, a number of companies do this. They create a patient forward site and it's a great, it's a great digital strategy, I think. Uh, so congratulations on that. Now, when you, you know, you got clearance in uh, Europe in 2013, you got your CE mark and then it wasn't until 2018 that the FDA uh, gave you, you know, the, the 510K clearance. What took so, why, why did it take so long with the FDA? Is it just the nature of our regulatory system? Yeah, it's, it's, it's about that, but it's also a bit more complicated because we, we started to work with the FDA clearance for the high food technology uh, with our first generation of equipment, which was called the Abitherm. And we started back in 2005, and it took almost 11 years until we get clearance uh, on, on that device. It started with a full PMA uh, regulatory path, wow. and it ended on with a de novo and then a 510K clearance. So once we got the, FD, the C marking for Focal One, we were in the middle 
of the clearance process of, of the first generation. So we waited until we concluded clearance of the ablatherm, and that was at the end of 2015, so that we could get started with the clearance of focal one. So in fact, the clearance of focal one was pretty quick because it took us less than it took us about two years, which is pretty reasonable. But what made us wait until then was the end of the first project was to really build the path uh, of, of clearing uh, uh, a technology such as HIFU for the treatment of prostate cancer, or better say, the intended use by the FDA is ablation of prosthetic tissue, uh, which actually it's, a, it's an interesting uh, intended use. And that's also show that FDA sort of recognized uh, the technology as a surgical tool in the end of the urologist to do ablation of prostate tissue. Very similar to the way uh, a scalpel has been approved. A scalpel has never been approved to cure a disease, but it has been approved to remove tissue, organ, cut tissues. And similarly, uh, HIFU was considered as a, as a non-invasive energy-based ablation surgical tool. And then it's in the end of the urologist, so it ablates uh, prostate tissue. Right. Now, since 2018, what has held, what has held you back from a really aggressive launch in the United States? So we, we, we got started then in 2018 to promote as we could you know, on the regulatory side do it. Now, you, have, you need different blocks or you need to achieve different milestones until you can really get to the, to the, to the, to the full picture or to the full market. And the other component that is extremely important is reimbursement. A technology has to be paid for if you want it to be used. So once it is cleared by the FDA, you need to work, you need to get a reimbursement code. And that takes some time. And actually, it went pretty quick as at the end of 15, we got clearance on HIFU for prostate ablation by the FDA. In 2017, we got a C code. A C code uh, was provided by Medicare. And a C code is a temporary reimbursement that will cover the technical part of the treatment. That means that will cover the cost of the machine for the hospital. But it doesn't yet, it doesn't yet include a code for the urologist for the physician to be paid. So that's limiting also the introduction of the technology. And we continue to work very closely with Medicare CMS, but also with the American Medical Association, as well as the American Urological Association. And they did all the survey they needed to then create what is called a CPT code category one, which is a definitive reimbursement. That means the technology will be paid forever and this payment code includes a physician fee as well as a technical fee. So that's what we've been working on. And we've got this CPT code was granted by CMS and it just became in use and in force at the beginning of 2021, which is pretty quick. Uh, and that again shows the interest and the attraction of this treatment to for the American patient as we could get it very quick after clearance. That is true. That is very quick. Quick. I mean, some companies work for years to lobby and to follow a number of different strategies to get to get a CPT code. Exactly. But in, in the meantime, you were doing something else very smart uh, based on your strong position in urology. But for this particular technology, the HIFU technology. You, um, while you were working on this reimbursement challenge, you were also building centers of excellence at, at some of the leading institutions. Can you say a little bit more about that? 
Absolutely. And that was clearly the, the strategy from scratch was really to start addressing key opinion leaders. I mean, the people in the United States that really lead uh, the treatment of prostate cancer. And not only they are key opinion leaders in terms of urologists, but also they all work in academic centers, very well-known centers. I mean, I can I can probably tell a few of them. Sure. Like Clinic, Cleveland Clinic. We've got University of South California, University of Miami, of Chicago, all those big centers. And we have sold about 14 to 15 equipment to probably the best, the top, you know, in academic centers that are all ranked among the top 30 or 50 centers in the US or in the world for the treatment of prostate cancer. And really the idea here is to build the clinical evidence and, and credibility of the technology by working with those key opinion leaders that will treat patients, not, but not only treat those patients, but also follow up very closely their data and doing a lot of work on clinical publication. And that will help, that has helped first building the the, uh, the the CPT code, and now it will help us build the next step of reimbursement, which is the market access and the coverage. Uh, as we mentioned before, at the beginning of this year, we had a cleared product by the FDA. We have a CPT code category one, but now we need to build coverage. We need to get that used. So for that, there is still a lot of work to be done on the ground and on the field to get the max giving covered lives for public patients and to have the private payers giving covered lives for the private patients. So now we have everything is there. So now we have to make it work and we have to make it work with those uh, institutions, with those private and public payers so that they will automatically cover uh, the claims uh, that will be sent by the patients that are treated with HIFU. So by, being, by, by working and starting our strategy with the tier one and academic centers, that definitely helps building a level of science and credibility in terms of the of clinical that will give confidence to those institutions so that they will take it into their, into their coverage policies. Okay. And how much does one of these instruments cost, one of these um, Focal One devices? So the, the Focal One device, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's an important investment for the hospital as it is sold for between six hundred dollars to $650,000. Wow. That's a great piece of revenue. What about disposables? So there is a single-use disposable that is sold for $1,200 and needs to be purchased for each patient. Okay. Okay. So that, that's, 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 a, that's a big investment indeed. But if you look at uh, the, Medicare co- I mean, the Medicare reimbursement, the code for the machine, as well as some private paid patients, uh, we had a very interesting uh, article that was published by one of our first users uh, the Houston Methodist Hospital, led by Dr. Brian Miles, then their purchasing manager made an article on how to invest into a HIFO machine for prostate treatment. And the, 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 um, the conclusion was that if you do two to three patients a month, and if you have a good mix of patients between private paid and Medicare patients, it will take you no longer than one and a half year to two years to pay it back. So it, it may look expensive, but the return on investment for the hospital is very easy and quick. And, and the return for the patient is amazing because you have an effective treatment with minimal side effects, which is a great thing. Uh, I think it's uh, fantastic. And there's a lot of other instruments that are that, are that expensive as well. But you know, this is a life-saving um, 
you know, technology and, and yeah, I say, de- I say device, but it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful yeah. um, setup that you, that you've and, developed. And Ted, I would say more than a life saving instrument, it's a quality of life preservation device. Right. And that's, that's today very important in medicine and in the management of, of a disease like prostate cancer, you know, prostate cancer is a very slow moving disease. So you may have prostate cancer, but we, you may not die from it. Now, what you, want to, what you want to do is you want to manage it the right way so that your life can continue to be as good as it was before uh, than, when, than when you were diagnosed. Exactly. And so let's talk a little bit more about the other applications beyond urology, because that, that is also very exciting. Yeah, absolutely. And, and one of them, what I would, I would, uh, I would call like a, a, a low-hanging fruit, on our technology is the use of, uh, of HIFU and more specifically focal one to treat uh, rectal endometriosis. So we realized some years ago that rectal endometriosis, the nodules of rectal endometriosis were often located in the same place as the prostate in men. So we did a phase one study here in Lyon with Professor Dubernard in, uh, in the University Hospital of La Croix-Rousse. We did a, a phase one study to see if we were able, by using the exact same device I showed you on the video, to visualize the nodule, the endometriosis nodule, using the uh, ultrasound uh, imaging transducer, and if we were able to target it with the high food transducer. And it went very successfully. We concluded the study, the phase one study, at the end of 2019, with a great study, with a great success, as we were able to see and target those nodules. So, based on that, uh, we wrote a protocol of a multicentric study, phase two, that we got approved despite the pandemic. It took us a little bit longer than usually, but it was approved by the French health authorities so that we could get started in September of 2020. And we started in in the, in the La Croix Hospital with Professor Dubernard. But we also included four additional centers in France, and uh, and we started to do some cases. Again, it was a complicated time because you know elective surgery were stopped, but clinical studies were even stopped before. But thanks to the uh, motivation and the enthusiasm of the clinical team of Dr. Dubernard in La Croix-Rousse to uh, to move the project forward, he was able to keep the uh, the treatments. Uh, under the study done, even the pandemic. So we, we currently have done 18 patients out of the 38 we need to treat. And we have, as it is a very symptomatic disease, the follow-up period uh, could be very small, very short, six months only. So we are very confident that we might be able to recruit the entire uh, population of patients before the end of the year and certainly have some results uh, somewhere next year. And that phase two study and the results and the clinical data we will gather might uh, allow us to start discussing with the regulatory authorities here in France for the CE marking and potentially in the U.S. as well for FDA. And what's the market for endometriosis or at least the, the part of it that you can readily treat? So endometriosis becomes to be more and more of an issue for a, a very large number of women worldwide. Uh, and more specifically, what we could call the modern women, the young generation. And it's, it's, it's about, from the different surveys that we have seen, it looks like about 10% of the, 
of women have an issue uh, are with endometriosis. The rectal part of, I mean, the, the, the endometriosis that is located in the, close to the rectum, between the rectum and uterus, represents approximately 20% of those. Okay. So it's 20% of 10% of the women, which is huge uh, if, we, if we look at it globally. Wow, that's, that is uh, very exciting. So I would guess that um, the focal one, or perhaps more generally, um, the HIFU type of technology is really the future for EDAP. Am I correct? Yeah, absolutely. And that's really the focus of the company is to, again, I mean, uh, clearly, and, and, and uh, we have, we have uh, last week concluded a, a, a fundraising to really accelerate our market access and coverage in the U.S. after what we just discussed, clearance, CPT code. Now we, we, need, we need to go to the next level, which is coverage, and then get the, uh, get the opportunity. So we will really focus on that, but we also the focus will be to work on building new indication. And again, one that is very, uh, very concrete now is endometriosis, but we also have a number of research programs for other indication and to ultimately build a platform, a HIFU platform that should be placed in the center of each and every theater in the world. Wow, that's exciting. That is very exciting. Yeah, it really is. Now, if we go look at the numbers, I'm um, I, and I was looking at, uh, which is great. I mean, it's so handy that you're a public company because I can go look at your annual reports and quarterly reports. But you nearly doubled the growth of the company from 2013 to 2019, um, which is actually a very, very good performance because you didn't have HIFU as a, like a leading product that entire time. I mean, it was cleared in 2013, but you're just coming up the ramp in terms of starting to commercialize it in Europe. Then in 2018, 2019, you had growth of like around 10%, 15% uh, respectively. And I'm, I'm assuming, am I correct, that Focal One these last couple of years has been uh, the biggest contributor to growth? Yeah, absolutely. And, and we could see it in the results of last year, uh, at the end of the year, more, more particularly, I mean, uh, Haifu was clearly a, a gross driver for the company. So, uh, and, and again, that's, uh, that will be the gross driver, not only for the top line, but as well, for, as, well as for the bottom line, as it uh, it's, it's generates much higher uh, margins than the, uh, the old business or the distribution business. So that's definitely the, uh, the the growth driver for the company. That's and and the focus for for the future. Yeah, I was looking at your quarterly performances in 2020, and you and I talked about this in our conversation the other day. That uh, the pandemic really slowed the revenues down in the first few quarters of the year, because it is technically an elective procedure. Even though these procedures are very important, they are considered elective. But then in Q4, you had a, um, a terrific quarter. Was Q4 a catch-up quarter? Was it pent-up demand that had an orders that just had to be transactionally fulfilled? Or, is the, um, or can you maintain that Q4 pace going forward? So, so first of all, medical device or, I mean, capital uh, expenditure like Focal One that are big budgets, I have usually a, a, a seasonality effect and based on budget cycle. And usually those big investments will be more uh, made towards the end of the year or the end of the cycle than 
uh, at the beginning of it. And we have seen that seasonality effect even increased during the pandemic as the visibility for hospital uh, is very is very limited you know in those days because they really don't know everything can change from one day to the other on the on the restrictions or or, or the different guidances and uh, recommendations they will get and, and we we strongly believe that's what has happened as well in Q4 after like you said a very slow start of the year in 2020 because of of the crisis and then at the end of the year budget needed to be to be to be spent so as we were able to maintain the relationship with our leads and prospects as we were able also to create more demand and to create more awareness among urologists as well as patients during the year so we have kept the pipeline and we could transform and close some deals at the end of the year where uh, when uh, hospitals were spending money and budget and, and again i think in 2021 it will it will potentially even though uh, we can say that the situation is better in terms of uh, treatments there are less you know closing hospitals and stuff like that but still still we can feel the visibility is very much smaller much lower than it is usually uh, uh, in normal years what so kind this, of quarter what kind of quarter did you have in q1 of this year so we have not yet disclosed on numbers so as a okay. public company i can't i can't uh, tell you too much even though we gave some preliminary results so our q1 of this year was much higher uh, than it was of, uh, in 2020. So it's it's a good trend. It's in the good direction. Uh, though, again, we can really feel at the ground level that there is uh, less, let's say, less or more restriction, more less visibility in investment, so less spending as we start a new cycle for budget. So we might see, again, seasonality uh, in the cell, and we might see the impact of COVID by increasing that seasonality effect. Okay. So possibly more loaded at the end of the year. Possibly. We'll see. I mean, we'll see as it moves forward. Again, uh, the situation is probably better in 2021 than what it was in 2020. So it might not be as, as strict as it was last year. But again, the, the issue is that nobody knows exactly uh, you know, how it's going to really uh, get started again. And right. that, that what, that's what makes it more complicated. And when COVID hit, what... What steps did you take when you saw the pandemic rushing through Italy and coming into France? You had the um, the big outbreaks that were caused by those religious gatherings in France. What what steps did you start to take to help you know provide the leadership for the company through the pandemic? No, I mean what we what we tried to do, and uh, we were very you know paying a lot of attention to what was happening. The idea was to really be in an anticipation mode. And back in spring of last year, you know, we had a, we had a very strong lockdown in Europe and then in France that everything was closed. So we had to make sure and we anticipated that very well by increasing production of consumables and disposables when they were starting discussing about it and, you know, make sure we have a, a lot of reserves and stock when they were you know, closing and locking down the country in a very strict way. We also made sure that all of our employees that are not on the manufacturing side would be well-equipped to work from home. So, I mean, by doing that and by being, you know, on the anticipation of that very much, we were ready when the lockdown was announced and we already had most of people working from home and we could, we could, have, the fa- we could have the factory closed for some weeks 
I think it went no more than five or six weeks, and then we got authorization to reopen. But we never had a shortage, and we never had an issue in providing spare parts, consumables, or equipment to our different projects. Again, because of the anticipation we've had in managing the crisis before uh, all of the announcement. And I think that's been one of the strengths. And again, I want to thank my my teams and colleagues because everyone really played uh, the right game and followed and and helped designing the right strategy so that we can continue to work in the best possible conditions. And we, again, could manage not only our delivery, but also our supply to avoid any shortage. And we had never had any shortage uh, during the crisis. And that was was pretty good. And I mean, again, everybody has been very uh, helpful and uh, very committed and engaged as most of the time in the company. So I, I, I really appreciated it. And I really want to thank everyone at EDAP for what they did and the way they anticipated the crisis to, uh, to, to keep the company working 100% of efficacy and, and, and production. That's a great achievement. And of course, we mentioned before that you recently raised $28 million. Um, obviously, people expect some results for being able to you know, make that investment. Is it possible to tell us what you, where you think the company might be in five years or 10 years in terms of well, revenues? Or I know you've got to be careful. It's a public company. Yes. <laughs> and we usually don't, don't give forward-looking statement. But again, the investment and the strong investment and again, to, to put back the, all this into the context, I mean, the company, uh, we brought the company, we grow it, like you said, significantly in the last five, 10 years. Uh, we also brought the company to profitability. So the company makes money. And we also had at the end of 2020, a very strong cash position. So we decided though to raise additional money because we really wanted to get a very strong company with a lot of resources to really work the big the big way on a big picture, the market access strategy in the US, build coverage and seize the opportunity. So what I think are the metrics and what I think needs to be followed as, and that will determine the, the success for the company, it will be our capability to build coverage in the US and therefore to build our sales and revenues in the US. And, and one of the strong metrics will be the number of patients that will be treated with the technology because building coverage and building all that, it's all about giving access to patients to the technology. Sure. So that investment is primarily going to be used in the United States to build the the marketing and sales infrastructure to move forward in this country. Absolutely. Okay. Well, it's really exciting. So I know you can't say anything forward forward looking, but if I look at your past and I do the math and I look at the potential of this instrument, easily, easily, easily a hundred million US in, you know, four or five years. And I I, I just think that's terrific. I, I I can't wait to keep watching this. Um, so anyway, I wish you the best of luck with that. Thanks. But I, I want to ask you a little, you know, uh, some other questions, maybe a little bit more about you. You've been the uh, CEO since 2007. You've been with the company for 24 years, you know, and you were in orthopedics prior to this, prior to EDAP. Did you, back 24, 25 years ago, did you think you were going to be a CEO? Was that on your horizon or 
where did um, did you did you have that in your mind? Well, it's it's uh, it's it's always difficult. I mean, when you're a young man, you know, to uh, to uh, to see where you would be in like 15 or 20 years. But certainly, I mean, I, I always built my career from 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 school until now to an international sales career. So I always wanted to be a salesman, and I wanted to do business at international level. And that's that's what I'm doing now, and that's what I started to do at EDAP when I joined. And I continue as I have a strong role in the commercial organization of the company globally, and uh, and and that's what I like. I like to bring and 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 bring you know technologies in the hands of uh, doctors, surgeons, so that they can improve not only as I said before the efficacy, but also the quality of life of their patients. And that's what I always wanted to do, and I always wanted to lead uh, you know programs and initiatives on that aspect. And that's what has brought me to the to the role of CEO today. And one thing I would like to say to listeners and viewers is that when Mark and I were talking about his career before, you know, I think he took a couple really important steps in terms you've spent you've spent time in like I think you spent time in the Pacific Rim. Did I think you said Malaysia? Yeah. Um, and so you spent uh, several years there which is a great experience, a great way to get international experience. And then you spent several years in the United States. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Sure. And, and even before that, my first mission and job was to uh, work under the umbrella of the French government, but for a private company uh, in Venezuela in the, in the pharmaceutical industry before I joined the orthopedic. And then I worked for a Swiss company in the orthopedic field. And I was in charge of sales of probably half of the world. Then I joined EDAP, where I had some roles in sales in South America, southern part of Europe and Middle East. And then in 2001, I uh, moved to Malaysia to our subsidiary that is our hub for technical and, and commercial activity in the Southeast Asia region to develop that region, to develop the sales there. And then I moved back after three years of sales development and, and actually selling the first high food device in the region. Uh, back in the time, uh, I moved back to Lyon uh, to take over the operation of the company until I was promoted in 2007 as the CEO of the company. And back in 2012, together with the board of directors, I decided to relocate myself in the US in anticipation of clearance by the FDA of the technology after having spent a lot of time, effort, and money in the process. So I decided to relocate myself in Austin, Texas, where we have our uh, corporate US office to start building the team, to start getting into the market, creating a network, and ultimately also work the FDA clearance that we achieved successfully at the end of 2015. And then when it was achieved, and then when we got the C code, then I decided to move back to France uh, to the headquarters as it was, it was a little bit complicated to be on both sides at the same time. But that, that has given me, again, like you said, a very good sense of international business, a good knowledge and experience of the US market and also that has helped me creating creating a very good network uh, in the urology community, in the healthcare system, as well as in the investor community in the U.S. those five years. So I have to ask you, when you were in Austin, did you fall oh. in love with the barbecue there? I, I was I was before a, a big barbecue guy, but I must admit I had, that I really improved and upgraded my skills in barbecue when I was there. <laughs> I forget the name of that one. There's a there's one or two places in Austin. That are that are famous across the country for barbecue, and 
but I forget the name of the one where you have to wait. You get there early in the morning and you wait a while. Yeah, and, and I forgot the name as well. I mean, that one is is very famous. And I mean, you have to wait probably a day or half a day before you get your turn. Yeah, and that's really famous. But there are plenty of uh, plenty of really famous uh, barbecue places in Austin. Ah, very good. Okay, so what do you think in your background, like when you were really young? Are there any things that happened when you were young when you're in uh university or were you an athlete are there any things that can maybe it was your family maybe it was the things your your parents did that contributed to the person that you are to become a leader you know what sort of helped forge your ability to be a leader well, I think you know, I, did, I did some sport when I was young, like most of people. I did some competition, and competition helps to be competitive. And you want to win. When you do competition, it's to win. It's not only to participate. So I think that's that has helped. And uh, and then I always, you know, I don't know if it's a family thing or whatever. Uh, my father was a doctor, so that has probably helped me going into the into the life science world. I then studied biology at University of Lyon. And then when I graduated from biology, I went into a, into a business school uh, as I wanted, you know, again, to be, I was always interested in sales and in the international environment. So I think all that together has contributed to uh, to give me some, some level of leadership and um, most importantly, to be extremely competitive in what I do. Okay. Okay. Well, that, that answers that question to some extent. Now you're uh, also the chairman of the board what kind of additional responsibilities does that give um, over and above being the CEO? Well, it's it's actually, you know, I've been a member of the board for a long time. And actually the, the, the prior chairman of the board was, I mean, joined the company about the same time as me uh, back 24 years ago. And he has mentored me uh, along the years uh, as he, he nominated me as a CEO. And uh, we, we've been working together uh, very closely for 15 years. So we sort of, you know, it was not a sudden new responsibility as I was CEO, but also a board member. And again, I was mentored uh, by the ex-chairman of the board, Philippe Chauveau, uh, during all those years. So it came come, came sort of naturally when uh, Philippe retired for me to take over his position as a chairman. Okay. And when you look at your uh, U.S. competitors, your U.S.-based competitors, or not even necessarily direct competitors, but when you look at the way U.S. companies are managed versus the way um, a French company is managed and or perhaps a European company is managed, what differences do you see? Well, I, I'm not sure the American way or European way of managing companies. It's, it's more a question of, of the company itself, the culture of the company, more than the culture of the country, even though there are differences between regions of the world. But I, I, I don't think we are a typical French company. We're very global. We're very global. I mean, we're a NASDAQ-listed company, though people are really feeling home in the company and they really like it as if it was their company. And I think that's a strong element of the EDAP culture is that people work really uh, if the company were there, not only a listed company. And they, there is a lot of uh, commitment. There is a lot of, em of emotion in the work and in the commitment of the teams. And that happens here in Lyon, where we have about 130 of our employees, but that also work in our Japanese uh, structure, where we have more than 50 employees, but also in the US, where we have now a small company that we will build 
to become a very big company and generate the major part of our revenues. So we have that in all of our structures worldwide. And that's more a culture of the company than the country. Okay. Yeah, because when I when I travel overseas and uh, before COVID hit, you know, I might be in France a couple times a year. And I just see some thing, different things in the culture. It almost seems like um, uh, not just the French, but Europeans in general are, I don't know if I want to use the word, studious. For example, you're on a train in uh, in the United States, everybody has earbuds in, you know, they're listening to something, music or whatever. And But in Europe, you'll actually see people reading books, um, young people even. So just, I don't know. It's, uh, this is changing. Let me, let me tell you one thing. <laughs> it's all about, and, and, and that's true. And I, I can see it as well in, in, in the culture of the company. And, and that's why I'm telling you, I don't think it's a question of, of place uh, or location. It's a question of, of it's, it's all about globalization. Yeah. And I agree with you that 20, 25 years ago, it was right. But now you, if you take the train, come back to France, visit us, and you'll take the train and you'll see people with earpods watching Netflix or doing some work on their computer, emails and stuff. So you see that everywhere in the world now. Okay. So <laughs> it's very, it's been, I mean, and that's a change that has happened in the last years. And that's very significant. That's why I think the, the influence or the impact is more the, the company's culture than the, uh, than like, you know, a way of doing in America or a way of doing in Japan. Of course, there are some differences, but they are minor. I think what drives the company and what drives the people is more the culture of the company. And I can really see that, as you said, I've, I've, I've been living in Venezuela, in Malaysia, in the US, and of course in France. And I can really feel, and I've been working for EDAP in all those regions of the world. And I can see that all those people working for EDAP have the same enthusiasm, the same motivation, the same commitment in helping, again, bringing to urologists and patients non-invasive and effective technologies. And that's that's really global, and that's what makes it, I think, uh, very powerful, and that's a very strong uh, uh, aspect of our company. Now, I've asked you a lot of questions, and we've we've really covered a lot of ground. Um, am I missing something? Have I missed anything that you would like to share that you think I've missed? Well, I think I think we we covered most of the most of the topics, and uh, I don't see what else except again, I I, I really. Uh, I really want to thank my uh, my my colleagues uh, again for their effort, and that's everywhere in the world. As I said, you know, I can really feel, and that's a great strength from the company from for EDAP, is that everyone everywhere in the world, uh, you know, has that strong motivation to uh, not only go and you know go in the morning to uh, to do a job, but they want they have a mission, and our mission is to create high food adoption worldwide. And you can feel that everyone at every level of the company. They have that mission and they want to make it happen. And union make the for make force, make strength. And we really feel that at EDAP. And I think that's uh, that's something I really appreciate as the CEO of the company. And uh, and I really, again, I'm very grateful about that from uh, on my colleagues. Are there any books that you recommend? Like, are there any business books that you've read recently that you think are uh, really helpful or stimulating? Not, not really. I think my only stimulation is the project, the mission. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you've been really busy. <laughs> exactly, exactly. I don't know. I don't know if so you've one, been... one, one book. One book that I've read many times recently, and I recommend, is to read the annual report 20F of EDAP TMS, and you'll understand how good it is 
how far we're going to go, how strong we, we are in going there, and, and why it's the right time to buy some shares. Okay. <laughs> Excellent. And I think I'll ask one more, one more question about culture. And do you actually, because I think that's personally very, very important. Uh, you know, it's the whole thing where I used to say to people as if I'm a manager, I want people to feel like they're working a hundred percent, but they're really giving me 110% or 120%. Um, so are there any things you do in particular at the company to foster this culture of enthusiasm and dedication? Yeah, I think it's the it's the teamwork, and uh, you know we we all work really as as a team, and and I'm a, I'm a clear member of the team, so I'm I'm very operational. I'm in the operation every day, and uh, and I like participation. I like to participate myself, and I like people that are participating as well. So I think that's that's one of the for me that's one of one of my way of managing is being part of it is being part of the team and i'm proud to be part of it okay excellent well i really appreciate the time you've spent today talking to us because this is a like i said before several times during the the program this is an exciting time for edap and for you and I really wish you and your team the best. I, I think you're going to have a very bright future, and I, I, I am looking forward to following it. So I, I really wish all of you the best. And I um, hope that even if it's just a short follow-up, you know, maybe it's 10, 15, 20 minutes, but <clears throat> perhaps a year from now or so, we get back together again for a short follow-up and talk about where you are where things have, what has happened in the last, you know, in, in the last year to see how you've done. Sure. Thank you for that. And I really appreciate it too. And, and I think in one year from now, we'll need probably more than 15 minutes because a lot of things will happen and, and we're ready to execute a lot of things and, and again, build a lot of great things in the U.S. and elsewhere. But it was, it was a real pleasure, Ted, and thank you very much for the opportunity. I think that was uh, good to talk to you today as we really feel for the company, you know, after so many years of clinical investigation and work, we really feel we are at the right time at the right place. So now it's time to deliver and make it happen. I agree. I agree. This is a great story of a company that has nurtured a very productive culture where a leader paid his dues and was mentored by the leadership of the company until he himself became CEO. As CEO, he has delivered results across the board, and Mark has continued to foster that very same culture. The HIFU technology is very, very exciting, but it won't meet its potential without a good leader and a team to back him up. EDAP has all of that. They are positioned for some very exciting years. Now, think about your company, your role, and its leaders, its culture, and the mentorship it provides. What will you do to foster a positive culture, either as a leader or a team member? And if you are a leader, who are you mentoring? Thanks again for listening in today. Now go win your week.